Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. March 18th, we are steaming into the Biden presidency, and increasingly people are trying to define what kind of presidency Biden will represent. Um, a lot of it is now, of course, bound up with his, uh, his relief bill and uh, his vice president, Kamala Harris, who has, I think, a knack of, of putting her finger on the zeitgeist. She, in some senses, is the zeitgeist, has uh, done a very good job in, 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 a, in a first stab at defining the Biden presidency. She said about the relief package, uh, in terms of Biden, uh, your empathy has become a trademark of your presidency and can be found on ev each and every page of the American Rescue Plan. So perhaps Joe Biden is the empathetic president. And this word empathy is making a big comeback. Uh, business leaders have always been obsessed with it. Uh, the word, of course, means uh, and I, I'm borrowing from the a dictionary here, uh, identifying the, the experiences and feelings and thoughts of others. Uh, the word is really becoming increasingly popular, according to Google, our collective brain. And so it's really appropriate today that we should be thinking about empathy. Uh, my guest on the show today has a new book out. It's entitled The Empathy Diaries, a memoir, and uh, Sherry Turkle has written a book, a book of her life built around the idea of empathy. I wouldn't call her an old friend, but she's certainly someone I feel I've known over the years. Uh, Sherry, congratulations on the book. It's a real achievement. Uh, I stayed up very late last night reading it. I don't always stay up so late. It's a compelling read, a must read. Once you start, you can't stop. Uh, why do you call it the Empathy Diaries, Sherry? Um, because empathy is the through line um, in what tied together my personal and professional life. And I wrote a book that I've always wanted to read, which is how someone's personal life animated and lit their professional life. And for me, empathy was that connector. And as you say so eloquently in your introduction, I think it is the it is going to be uh, the through line for how our country is going to rebuild itself. Um, the book is complicated, perhaps like you, Sherry. Uh, at the beginning, you say something really interesting, or you write something interesting. Uh, you're writing about your history of your father and your naming, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, but you say about yourself, from a very young age, I saw myself as my life's detective. And a light bulb went off, uh, Sherry. Perhaps if you'd have been a boy, you would have been named Sherlock. Uh, you are, in some ways, a peculiar way, uh, the, the female version of Sherlock Holmes. Do you think you made an error, Sherry? Should you have gone into the police? 
No, I think I became uh, a detective. I became an anthropologist, a sociologist, a psychologist. I became the detective of how technology is changing who we are. I think too few people, uh, when I started out, were curious about that. I went to MIT and I said, the computer is changing how we think. And people said, no, the computer is just a tool. And I said, no, I'm de I'm detecting that the computer is changing how we think and feel. And people said, no, the computer is just a tool. So I had the tenacity of Sherlock Holmes, but I also, because of my life situation, had was told so little of my life and had so much of my life was shrouded in secrecy that I had to use those same detecting skills to find out the mystery of who I was, what was my name, who was my father. All of these things were also shrouded in secrecy. And the book itself is, as you say, a, a, a form of detection, of self-detection. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, uh, my daughter's obsessed with the Sherlock Holmes series. I'm not sure if you've seen it with the, the, the BBC series with Benedict Cumberbatch. Um, Holmes and Watson. What's interesting about that series um, is that Sherlock Holmes is presented as a genius without empathy. The guy with empathy is Watson, the doctor, his sidekick. Yes. Um, insight and empathy, do you have them both? Do you have to learn one or the other? Do they come together? Are they a package like Holmes and Watson? Well, actually... The, the mysteries that I had to detect were mysteries about what other people were feeling, what other people's motivations were. So unlike Sherlock Holmes, who had a bit more of puzzle pieces, the puzzles I had to detect were much more empathic puzzles. Um, so I think, yes, I did in some ways had to put together thought and feeling, and that's kind of become my brand. Um, I say in the book that before empathy became a, uh, a psychological virtue for me, it was a survival mechanism because I needed it to literally get into the heads of the people around me and figure out why they were acting so strangely. Why wouldn't my mother tell me my father's name? I didn't know my father's name. Why and here we have, uh, if, if, there is, uh, if there is a main character in the book, apart from yourself, of course, and here we have Sherry as, as, as such a beautiful baby. It won an award. Um, and, I was Brooklyn's uh, most beautiful baby. Yep, and you still are. <laughs> um, but here's the main character in the book, your mom remarkable woman who you do a, 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 a it, it's it's really a book I think if, if if it's about any anyone it's about your mom tell me about her well my mother was um an extraordinary woman a beautiful woman a loving woman um a physical a tremendous physical presence but she had um uh she had a she married and had me uh, and then she found out something terrible. I don't want to, I don't know how many spoiler alerts I want to give away in the story. Well, but she, found uh, yeah, she wasn't, uh, I mean, I think you tell it in the beginning. She, she yeah. quickly, having had you got divorced, she left her she, first she husband. Left, she left, she left her first husband. Who was not called Turkle, right? Who had another name. 
who had another name. His name was Charles Zimmerman. Um, but the thing I wanted to say about my mother, she had a kind of, I want to say tragic flaw, which was that she, and maybe it was her survival mechanism, is that she had a capacity to make a world around her the way she wanted her world to be. Um, so that when she divorced Charles Zimmerman, she told me that we would never talk about her divorce or Charles Zimmerman. I would not call myself Sherry Zimmerman. I would call myself by the name of her next husband, Milton Turkle. Although my name was not Sherry Turkle, Milton Turkle adopted me many years later, late into my teenage years. Uh, we would not say she was divorced. We would say that Milton Turkle was her first husband. I was his daughter. And the two other children she had with Milton Turkle were my sister and brother for Milton Turkle. I had to hide the papers I wrote in school because they said Sherry Zimmerman because that was my legal name. Uh, mm. Created when she became very ill and she, ha she had a, a terminal breast cancer. She did not tell anyone. She made she pretended that that too didn't exist. She didn't she even tell you that uh, she she'd had one breast removed. And, and no, she, she, no. She was a, you know, there are other words we could use. You obviously love your mother, and it's a very loving yes. portrayal. Um, but she was a fabricator. She made stuff up. Um, I, I well, was particularly you, struck. No, well, you're, you're, you're describing your mother, so you're obviously going to be very generous. And I'm not necessarily being critical. I was really struck by uh, the fact that she continually took years off her age. She lied about her appearance. And I wonder, Sherry, you, of course, everyone will know you as not only the author of this memoir, but the author of some marvelous books about digital culture, Alone Together, Reclaiming Conversation. I wonder yeah. if we could fit your mother into a different cultural and technological epoch, the epoch of Hollywood. You mentioned that she was happiest um, when she was imagining Rosh Hashanah with Hollywood stars. Was there something about Hollywood that defined her ontology that made her a reflection of her times? Yes. She, she, um, she wanted to be uh, in a different world. She imagined herself uh, in a glamorous world of Sid Charisse and Tony Martin and Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. She and wasn't that unusual for that time because everything no. that, that, that your mother's generation read and saw, of course, at the movies, yeah. the movies surrounded your life. Your yeah. grandfather worked nights at a, at a movie theater in New York. So you were brought up in this kind of Hollywood culture, even though you never set yeah. foot in Los Angeles till a lot later. She read movie magazines. She, 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 she was proud that she looked like Ruth Hussey. Right. She looks like a movie star. If we, if, yeah. if we tell our audience that this was a, a star of some Hollywood movies, people would, would, would accept it unthinkingly. Um, yeah. What do you think your mother would think of Instagram and Facebook? Do you think oh, she'd be comfortable with it? She would be an influencer. She would definitely want to be an influencer. She would love it. The book is, in some ways, I think, quite critical of, of men. And, and I'm sure people <laughs> have made this point before, Sherry. There are two types of people in the, in the book. 
There are heroines like your mother and particularly your grandmother and your aunt, remarkable women and yourself and some of your female friends. And then there are the men. There's your biological father, who's a catastrophe. Uh, there's your adopted father, who's an even bigger catastrophe. There's your husband, who's your first husband at MIT, who's very weird. There's even your grandfather, who's the best male in the book. But even he has his flaws. I, I was curious in the book, um, you, when you were growing up, you were relieved of all household responsibilities. You were, saw, you were seen as a genius. And the family kind of invested everything in you. In a funny kind of way, you were treated as a little boy, weren't you? I was treated as a the way they used to treat um, gifted young men who would who would be marked uh, to go to the yeshiva and would be hopefully one day great men of learning or rabbis, men who would never work. That's how I was treated. Which is a very male other than a female thing. I mean, the women, yeah. the women cooked, yes, and, and the men, uh, and the men read the Talmud. Yes, I was treated as as a as someone who would read the Talmud. So, for example, my grandmother didn't treat, teach me how to cook. That was very important for my grandmother that I would not learn how to cook because if I learned how to cook and I was pretty. This could be a catastrophe because that combination of cooking and that combination of cooking and, and and looks, that would mean that I would be a slave to the kitchen for some man and 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 I would never achieve what I was meant to achieve. My mother was dedicated, who worked as an office manager, was dedicated to the idea that I would not learn to type because the combination of good looks and typing ability would mean that I would put be put immediately into uh, the typing pool. Um, and this would be uh, another catastrophe. So uh, not, not knowing how to type and not knowing how to cook, um, clearly I needed to do um, a lot of, um, how should we say, uh, remedial work as soon as I hit the real world because typing right. and Word. Right. It's ironic because, of course, you type this book eventually. Um, yeah, I type and, the book. Uh, I, I'm very curious. You're you're steeped in Freud, so I'm not going to make any Freud jokes because you'll make uh -huh. a fool of me. But there's something that really sticks out, to use a Freudian term in the book. Um, it seems as if you're obsessed with food. There's so <laughs> many descriptions of food. And yet, no descriptions of sex. There's nothing about sex in the book at all. I was waiting for some juicy stories of when you had your first orgasm and blah, blah, blah. There's none of that. But every page almost, there are descriptions of food. Sometimes you cook, other people cook. The food, I mean, your, your most cherished memories of growing up uh, in, 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 in Brooklyn are food memories. What is it about food that, that, that ties this book together? Well... There's also a lot of descriptions of clothes. And Somebody clothes, right. I was I, I didn't want to sound too I've written yeah. an essay. I've written an essay that I, I'm dying to publish uh, about called The Dresses of My Life. Right. Because at every, at every important turning point in this book, yeah. there's yeah. an item of clothing that I either wear or burn. <laughs> right. Well, what would Freud say about all the food and all the clothes in the book? Well, um, 
there's also a pocketbook that my aunt buys me. That buys. Right. Uh, well, but but let's mean, talk I, about I, the food. I'm, I'm okay, curious. Let's talk about the food. I come from a Jewish household where my grandmother, although she hated the idea of me cooking, uh, showed her love through the making of meals uh, and putting them on her dishes. Um, and I think that actually... Uh, for my grandmother, it was less the food than putting the food, than setting the table and putting mm. the food on these beautiful dishes that she felt very strongly that these dishes that um, had been given to her by her mother and grandmother when she was born, oh, excuse me, when she got married, were the only dishes, were the only things of value that would outlive her. The mm. only thing she had a value. China, was it from, uh, it was Czech China. Czech. It was Czech China that they had bought on the Lower East Side. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I have these dishes and my daughter uh, eats on these dishes and these dishes have a journey of their own. And I know that my daughter's children will eat on these dishes. My grandmother was right. So I am a, a collector of fine China and uh, less of a cook than in the center of beautiful tables, uh, in fact. Um, but then it's true. I described making a meal, a vegetarian meal for Steve Jobs. I described yeah. going caviar dinners. Which, he, which is, in his incom incomparable way, told you that he didn't like. No, he walked in. He looked at the food. He said, this is not my kind of vegetarian. And he walked in. <laughs> That's the Mother Steve Jobs um, story. Yeah, I, I, I'm curious as to uh, you're also, of course, facts. I I just claim, you know, this is a memoir. It's not a it's not a tell-all. I mean, nice thing about yeah. a memoir is you in the memoir you you um uh, you 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 say what you think is relevant and uh, right. Just you know, despite your expectations, maybe that will be the next book. We can have a, a real tell-all, Sherry. Uh, everyone will be familiar with your New York Times bestseller, Reclaiming Conversation. And one of the nice things I think about this book is how you describe learning conversation in a in a kind of a, 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 a broader cultural context. Um, you, you talk about the way it was to grow up in your family. Uh, you say, this is how my family talked during television commercials, why Joe McCarthy needed to be stopped in order to save democracy, over Rice Krispies at breakfast, ruminations about the Holocaust, while I was in the bath, how someone like Hitler could take power in the United States. No transitions. I like that term, no transitions, Sherry. Yeah. And I think that that absence of transitions allows you to write this this wonderful book which is a book both about rice krispies and adolf hitler yes and then i say it gives a particular cadence to my conversation which right it's the cadence every, that's so important yes, it's, it's not it's not it's not for everybody um because i, I there you have it in front of me no matter what the occasion, I could be hosting a birthday party, I could be sh buying shoes with my daughter, I could be about to kiss my lover. I'm always one sentence away from bringing up democracy, religious freedom, the rights of minority, all of these in danger. And that's not to everybody's taste. <laughs> right, and it goes the other way as well. While you're talking about <laughs> democracy, <laughs> you're one cadence away from, from talking about Rice Krispies. Exactly, exactly. It's like, you know, pass the toast, 
you know, and I really think, you know, and I really think that Black Lives Matter and, and you know, my daughter will sometimes like look up and say, mommy, you know, <laughs> sort of like yeah. lighten up, you know. So, but I, I grew up under the shadow of the Holocaust. The Holocaust was a presence at the dinner table every night, even though my family was not um, uh, directly affected. We certainly had extended family in Europe that was. And and I think that, um, I think that, that that quality, which I know, uh, I know was not a lot, it wasn't special to my family. It was, it was shared by so many American Jews. Um, it meant that there was that there were no transitions because there was always this other guest at dinner. Right, right. And just as, as there was always the other guest at dinner, the Holocaust, there was always the other guest for you, um, your your other life. Um, yes. You 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 write about uh, Lacan. You happened to meet him in Paris, I think, in sixty eight or sixty nine. You became, wouldn't say friendly, but you you worked uh, you developed a working relationship. What was it about Lacan? And a lot of people are mystified, I think, by Lacan. Still, I am, I have to admit. What was it about Lacan and his theory of language that helped you make sense of this loss of your father's name? Well, Lacan is all about, I mean, what's really interesting is that Lacan, um, at the center of his theory, is that a child's identity is shaped in so many ways by the mother's way of presenting the father's name, that is the father's kind of centrality to the family as the father represents the larger society. So this is a kind of French Freud in a way, right? Yes, it's a French Freud. So that's 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 Lacan's interpretation of what's going on in the Oedipal crisis. It's not a, it's not really a crisis of uh, about sex. It's a crisis about social integration, and what the father's name represents. I mean, this is really a simplification, but it's a moment in which the child takes on uh, this symbolic order. That is the order of the society around, the language and the order of the society around. And the mother's way of presenting that, the mother has a role in that. It's, it's her acceptance of the father as, as, as symbolic of that um, um, name being part of the larger social structure and the child's mm. taking that on. My mother... That was completely, as Lacan would say, foreclosed. I mean, that wasn't even part of the, that wasn't yeah. part of the conversation in any sense. And so, um, uh, my fascination with Lacan was really a fascination with someone who put that at the center of the psychoanalytic story. It here, also, you, here, here, are you, here is uh, you and the great Jacques Lacan. This. Uh, Yes, immortal eccentric character. Some people think he's a fraud. Some people think he's for real. Did you tell him everything about yourself? Did you tell him about the time when Milton, your adopted father, got you in the shower naked with him when you were four or five years old, which you write about in the book? No, we didn't have that kind of relationship at all. We had a very uh, structure. He called me Chercher, which in yeah. French means it's a play on the word dearest yeah, at least he didn't call you Sherlock, right? No, he didn't call me Sherlock. He called me, he called me, it was a term of endearment, 
Yeah. But it was really it was really a term of um, it means researcher. He yeah. was very uh, I think what he wanted for me was to make him better liked in America, more well known in America. Uh, I think you didn't do a very good job, did you? Well, I wrote a book about him. I wrote a book about him in 1978 yeah. called Psychoanalytic Politics, um, yeah. in which I presented him as uh, in in fairly um, positive way because I think he did do something interesting for the psychoanalytic movement. He moved the psychoanalytic movement out of um, uh, um, the world of ego psychology. Americans were still yeah. at that point. You know, you you have an ego, and it's kind of your like little person in your head, and you're um, and you're like looking at the world, and then you have a super ego that's saying, "Oh no, let's get that dirty stuff suppressed." And you have a, you know, yeah. I mean, it was a very primitive. I mean, I, I'm curious. Um, I, I'm curious, Sherry. In terms of your narrative, your journey, you go from your birth father, who spent his life writing a book about why Einstein was wrong, to your adopted father who wanted to be a, 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 a an American history scholar and turned out to be a waiter and very angry and unpleasant towards you much of his life, to this relationship with Lacan. I mean, it wasn't a, a physical relationship, but it was an intellectual one. And you write about your your first husband, Seymour Papert. Here, here we have a photo of him with your, your grandfather, very different kinds of specimens. He was also <laughs> a genius, a, uh, a professor, a distinguished professor at MIT, was there something do you think about your your father, but particularly your adopted father, that attracted you intellectually or sexually to men like Papert and Lacan? I think I was attracted uh, to men who could teach me something. Uh, I um, I thought a lot about when I, after I discovered my father, I did discover my father who had disproved Einstein and who thought that he was a great scientist until, you know, I was in my late twenties and uh, was married to Seymour Papert. Uh, and then looked back, I think I was 29. And then I sort of looked back and said, oh my God, I'm married to a man twice my age, who's a kind of eccentric scientist. Oops. You know, <laughs> what is that? You know, that's kind of amazing. Um, and so it certainly crossed my mind, and I write in the book that it, it it added a level of strain to our marriage because, you know, he was no dummy. He said, whoa, you know, I'm an eccentric scientist. Uh, did she marry an eccentric scientist? Because her father and the signs, was I mean, you write about it. I don't know if you mean to, but my reading of the book is that the signs were there right at the beginning, that this guy was not someone you should be married to. Yes, well, I write, I write very honestly in the book that I fell in love with Seymour Papert, deeply in love. And um, I was in psychoanalysis at the time. And he began doing things uh, that were uh, odd and that were disturbing. I mean, nothing, you know, nothing hurtful, but, but, but you know, clearly showing that he had some ambivalence about being married, although he was like all in, he was like filled with love and love and was very romantic, but you know, just things that well, showed- Well, too romantic, wasn't he? He had several girl, he had girlfriends all over the world, ex-wives right. that he never told you about. Yeah, he, didn't, like... tell me, he right. didn't tell me about every ex-wife, for example. 
And I didn't tell my analyst about them. I didn't, I, I, I so wanted to marry Seymour Papert that I didn't tell my analyst the things I was finding out about Seymour Papert that would make my analyst say, whoa, let's just take it slow and talk about this. And as the things that I was learning got accelerated, I withdrew from the analysis. This is my first analysis. Rather than, uh, rather than postpone my marriage to Seymour Papert. This is what makes the book a brave book. Oh, it's I'm absolutely, yeah. It's, it's incredibly enough, brave. I'm honest enough to say that I wanted to marry Seymour Papert so much. I was so compelled by this relationship that I said, I'm doing this and I will just see what happens in life if I do this. And I you learned from your mother, I think, um, Sherry. Uh, your mother, who, who, who tended not to tell the truth. This is a, a, an intensely truthful book. Um, what's the relationship between truthfulness and empathy? I think in order to be empathic with someone else, you have to be able to be comfortable enough in your skin to know who you are or else you're looking to the other person to tell you who you are. Or looking to Hollywood like your mother did. Yes, or you're looking to the other person who you're talking to to tell you who you are. My mother looked to everybody else to tell her who she was. And, And I think that I am capable of empathy because certainly by the time I wrote this book, I know who I am. Well, so many people will right. Many people will know who you are. They won't know the, the the personal details, but everyone knows who you are in terms of your work on technology and your your job at MIT. You said you write, and this is the, really the third section in the book. At MIT, I had a front row seat on a movement from a psychoanalytic to a computer culture. This is a kind of Hegelian moment, and you have the front seat, and it's an unusual seat because you're. It's a seat that faces both ways, both towards technology and towards humanity. Um, very briefly, uh, Sherry, because we don't have too much time left, what has that front seat told you? You have one chapter called The Assault on Empathy. Has this chapter, um, this, this shift from the psychoanalytic to the computer culture, is that the crisis of empathy in, in our culture today? I think the crisis of empathy in our culture today is that empathy requires, empathy begins in solitude because of what I was, because of this difficult truth that you have to be content with you before you can listen. And if your attention is all over, if you're looking at your phone, if you're looking at if you're looking at two screens, if you're thinking about what, what message might be coming in, if you're hyper-stimulated, you, you don't get practice in doing that. And, um, and as a matter of fact, the, the world of internet business is trying to hyper-stimulate you so that you can't be comfortable in your own skin. And so we first need to be able to collect ourselves and find ourselves 
before we can have the the the, the solitude and the and the self and and the, the sense of self to be able to really turn with full attention to another person. That's really the crisis in empathy. And the next crisis in empathy is that we're vulnerable to um, uh, we're vulnerable. We like hiding behind our screens because we're less vulnerable when we're behind our screens and screens allow us to be not empathic because we can be less vulnerable to other people because being empathic means that you need to, as I, as I was saying, be there for somebody else. It's not just a kumbaya moment. It really means going the distance with somebody else. And it's easier to just be behind the screen and disappear when you, you know, want to. And so screens tempt us in ways, you know, screens tempt us away from empathy in significant ways. It may not be a coincidence. Your book has already been acclaimed. All your books are bestsellers, loved by the critics. This one has been really acclaimed. The New York Times said it's one of the books of the week. And, and again, speaking of Hegel's, probably no coincidence that it's the book of the week with Kazuo Ishiguro's Clara and the Sun, which is um, a, a, a fictional book about a, a humanoid who cares for humans. Um, you've written a lot about this in your work, about our emotional relationship to AI. Um, you, 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 you talk actually in the book about AI uh, and some interesting anecdotes about Marvin Minsky, the founder, the MIT founder of AI. Um, are we at that moment, Sherry, in historical terms where what you've been warning about is this increasing failure to distinguish between machines and humans is undermining our existence? Are we in, essentially... Um, you say at one point in the book, uh, it was always interesting about humans using machines, but are humans themselves becoming machines? This is what Ishiguro, I don't know if you've read the book, uh, I'm sure you'd be fascinated with it, uh, explores it in the book, and it's a great compliment to your work. Yes. No, I, in my last book, in Reclaiming Conversation, I talked about us being at the robotic moment. And I say the robotic right. moment is not the moment when robots are friends and companions. It's the moment when we're ready to accept them as our friends and companions. Which is because what Ishiguro presents in his book, Clara and the Sun. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's a terribly dangerous moment that we're at because um, the, the issues that I need to talk about now, loneliness, fear of COVID, my desire to see my child, my fear of death. What, what can a robot tell me about that? Nothing against the robot, nothing against the chatbot. It's brilliant. It can pretend empathy, but it doesn't have a baby. It doesn't have a, it doesn't know what it is to be intubated. It doesn't know what it is to fear death. It didn't see its mother die. Nothing against the robot. You know what I mean? It, it, but it's pretend empathy. And the question is, what is it doing to us? What is it saying about us? That we really are ready to accept pretend empathy as the real thing. And I think we all need to think very hard about that now because we now are being presented with pretend empathy and sold it 
as though it is the real thing. And great novelists are writing about it, and and we, it, it, it's in the culture now, as though it's an option. And it really is a moment of testing for people, and real, uh, it, real soul searching about if you're afraid of, if you're afraid now, or afraid of loneliness, afraid of dying, afraid need to talk about what it's been like to be this lonely, this afraid of something that could finally kill you, what could a robot have to say to you? Well, there's no fake empathy in in in, in this wonderful book. Uh, must read, I think, for any fan or no of, of, of Sherry Turkle and for, for, for anyone else. The, the little girl in that picture is, is Sherry. Um, there's a lot of other stuff, a lot of layers. I think that's probably the image. Uh, finally, Sherry, you have a photo of yourself at the end with your daughter, Rebecca, and she's the other guiding spirit alongside your grandmother and mother in the book. What do you think Rebecca learned about this book that she didn't know? Uh, and the books, of course, are the opposite of, uh, of robots. Books are the opposite of the, 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 the culture that you warn us against. What has Rebecca learned about uh, Sherry Turkle that she didn't know? from the empathy diaries i think uh i had never really fully talked to her about uh uh what it was like to grow up without a name i think i mentioned you know i think i told her that two names you had a name you had two names that was the problem (laughs) but i mean i think that that hiding the name hiding my notebooks that's there's a scene in which I'm at a Girl Scout meeting and I say my name is Sherry Zimmerman and my and my mother doesn't talk to me for two weeks. I've outed her and she doesn't know what to do. I, 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 think, I, I think that the idea of my daughter to imagine what it would be like for me to not talk to her for two weeks when she was nine or 10, I, I think she thought about me and my life in a, in a different way. Uh, so I think, I think it gave her a more empathic understanding of me. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad I wrote it as a kind. She, she said it was a gift to her. And, and I think it was a gift to her. I so now we know that there are, there are two great 20th century or early 21st century American Zimmermans. And we don't know either of them as Zimmermans, Sherry Turkle and, of course, Bob Dylan. Uh, Sherry Turkle, you are in Provincetown now. Everyone needs, as I said, to read your book. You're stuck like everybody else in these weird times. What else should people be reading in addition to your book? Uh, I'm reading a book by Honor Moore, uh, which is about a book about mothers and daughters. Uh, it's called... Hold it up. Rev- Hold it high because we don't see it. Uh, it's a book called Our Revolution, A Mother and Daughter at Mid-Century. And I love this book very much because it's a it's another book about mothers and daughters and how they kind of fight it out. Well, Sherry Talk was uh, it's a it's a real uh, honor to talk to you. Wonderful book, as I said, I'm I'm full of it. Uh, I'm not going to ask too many more personal questions, but we want another book from you. I hope uh, the next the the follow up will be. There'll be even more descriptions of food. Thank you so much. Congratulations on the book and talk to you. Keep well. Talk to you again very soon. Thank you.